We are grateful for the presence of God. We are grateful that he is the very life that we live, the very air that we breathe. Everything that we are, he is, and everything that he is, we hope to be. Um, we're just grateful for his presence. Um, without him, we are not sustained. We have no strength. We have no life. We are not in existence. We are nothing apart from the saving um, grace of Jesus Christ. And for him, we are just truly grateful. And um, I'm grateful again this week to be back in the house of the Lord just to make sure that we are um, just being faithful to God and in scripture. And that is the joy of my, my week each week is just being able to present the word of God um, here before before you all. And as you know, we have been working through the book of Acts and I'm just really grateful that we have one just been faithful to the text in order to get this far and just have been able to work through it. And so it's my privilege to say that we are all the way up to Acts chapter 19. And I just pray um, that this time that we're sharing is just a continual time of just growth in the word of God. And so we're um, through Acts 19 and maybe before uh, the middle of the year next year, we'll be done with Acts. But I just pray you all have um, been growing from it. So the uh, title of today's sermon is Powerless Pretenders, Powerless Pretenders. And um, one of the more unique things, I think, um, about the Bible that we hopefully see and are seeing is that it is very much a book about the people and the times and the lives of those who are experiencing the things that we see and read in it. But more than that, it is a book that has maintained an incredible amount of relevance. I mean, we're talking thousands of years. And it is unique in this sense that everything that the Bible shows us and allows us to address in our own lives, as relevant as it may have been for the people who were experiencing it then, it is just as relevant for us even today. And so there are all these things that we think, wow, I read this, but this looks like it was written about today and for today and even about me. And I think that's what makes the Bible unique in its influence. But I also think that's what makes it at times a little bit scary because we are reading things that happened way back then, which seem to be mirroring the things that are happening even today. And one of the things we're going to see is that hopefully by looking back at what happens in yesterday, it will provide us some insight about what is happening in today. And so what I'm hoping the insight that we gather today is that we're going to see what's going to happen when these seven sons of Sceva are going to try to make a demon come out of a man or a man who had many demons. And we're going to see what, what happens with them but really what I hope it shows us is that we are just as fascinated, captivated by magic and spiritism and mysticism as those people were back then. And I hope that it also shows us that in Christ, we can be authentically who he has made us to be. He gives us the power so that we don't have to pretend to be something we aren't. That when he saves us, he makes us like him and that we can live in the truth of who he is because we've been declared righteous by his righteousness. So we're going to look in Acts chapter 19 and we're going to start in verse 11. 
Some of you may be familiar with this scripture. And um, we're going to go from there and, and just talk a little bit about it. And hopefully we'll see some things that are relevant for our own lives today. In Acts 19:11, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jews, Jewish exorcists undertook the, to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of Sceva, of a Jewish high priest named Sceva, were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Father God, we thank you just for another opportunity to share in your word, God, to learn about you, to be encouraged, to be revealed, to be um, sanctified in the truth of the word, God. I just pray out of this sermon we see um, how it e- how easy it is for us to falsify our faith, but how in you we have what we need to be authentic and real and genuinely who you've created us to be in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so now you have noticed that we, if you've been following, we skip some verses here, some passages, and that's mostly just because I probably already preached on those before. So as I always say, you can go to the podcast, listen to those older sermons. But Just to catch you up a bit, where we are now is that Paul is in the third leg of his missionary journey and he has just landed in Ephesus. And I've talked about Ephesus before, so I don't have to give you the scholarly background, but just reminding you that this would have been a place near where Turkey is today, East Asia. And it was an area that was known, kind of dominated by the practice of their Artemis religion. And it heavily influenced all of their religious beliefs. And so because of that, even some of those believers, as we see in the text, converted even some of them because they were so influenced by this mysticism, it was still invading their Christianity. They were still very much captivated by mysticism and spiritism. And so I hope you can see, and I'll flesh it out a little bit more, but this captivation that mysticism and spiritism has on the world was not just localized to those people way back then, but is actually quite relevant for what many people are doing and struggling with today. Even today, there is still this obsession with this almost, you know, fake kind of created religion, fake spirituality, and it is infiltrating many, many of our churches. Are there consequences for this? Well, absolutely. There are consequences for this. And I don't think that 
the consequences are any different now than what we see from our text. So I want you to look back at it. It says, look at look at the beginning here. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. So the literal meaning here is that God was doing no ordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. So it does not just convey how spectacular they are, but rather it is pointing out that the things that were happening, the aprons, the handkerchiefs, the cloths, all those things were actually not the norm, even for that time. Now, Luke is again writing this from the dictation of Paul. So Paul is the one who's telling them this is what happened. And it's Paul who actually makes a point to say Hey, just so you know, these were not the normal things that were happening. It was extraordinary, out of the ordinary, that people were touching handkerchiefs and aprons and they were being healed by the power of God, not by me. Now, why is it that he's making this point? I think he's making this point to avoid happening what actually ended up happening anyway. He says, listen, just so we're clear, this was not the norm. So nobody should be going out trying to, you know, sell water or sell cloths, or do any of these things so that they may be healed, this was actually out of the ordinary. But even in saying that, even in making that clear, we still then and now have people who, who are bent towards such fake practices in order to convince people that they are empowered in a way that they aren't. And what's beautiful is that Paul actually could have taken the credit here. He could have said, oh, yes, this was happening all the time. I was very spiritual, very powerful. And he doesn't. He says, no, I realize that this was out of the ordinary. Now, people who read this may think, OK, I like this. We've seen it. This is a good opportunity for me to demonstrate power. This is also a good opportunity for me to make some money for myself. So we get on TV and we see a miracle water and miracle cloths and all those things. And it's not an opportunity to point people back to God, but rather it's an opportunity to point people back to us and how spiritual we are and how empowered we are. This is a trend that reaches much further back than Benny Hinn or Peter Popov. All right. It's been going on for a long time. So I think one of the things that we need to wrestle with today is even today, why do we have so many people who need a sign? Why do we have so many people who are claiming even to be Christians who are sign seeking spiritualists? I think that's the question we need to answer. And so that brings us to our first point of today's sermon. It's because it requires no depth. It requires no depth to seek a sign. Now, the reality, look, this may hit harder than I intended to, but it is the reality. If our faith, what we believe to be true about God, to be true about Jesus, is simply based on easy believism and just conjuring up miracles at will, then that requires no depth on our part at all. One of the evidences that we do not have a true knowledge of God is that we tend to only seek God to be the fulfillment of our greatest obstacles and our greatest challenges. But we deny his presence in the everyday happening of our lives. I think if we look back with the Israelites, this is one of their more common mistakes. They absolutely knew how to call on the name of the Lord 
Only when it was convenient for them to call on the name of the Lord, when they got in trouble, when they were facing Pharaoh, whatever the case may be, then they said, oh, we want the power and the majesty of the God who we say is our God. But when it came to the everyday obedience and discipline, they had no communication with him. I think that is actually very much common in what we see today and how people handle their relationship with God. They they like we do know how to call God in all the cataclysmic situations. But the problem is, is that we don't know how to call on God in our everyday life. I would even argue that the reason we don't know how to call on God in our everyday life is because we don't think that our relationship with God necessitates him to be present in our everyday life. For us, it should be. Not, it should not just be our desire to seek signs or miracles or God's occasional presence for the big things, but we should be seeking him at all points and at all times. Now, unfortunately, if we're all honest, myself included, that's just not the case. That's not the norm. It is much easier to know how dependent I need to be on God when somebody has cancer. It is much easier to know that I need to be dependent on God when a bill that I don't have the money for needs to be paid. But what about my everyday sanctification? What about my everyday sinful thoughts, my sinful words, my sinful deeds? Am I in the same way asking God to come and have power in those things in my life as well? Many of us are content living our happy little lives apart from God until we need something big to happen. Now, maybe it isn't as dramatic as, you know, the seven sons of Sceva here trying to command a demon or demons to come out of a man. But it is quite the same in the sense that I want you to see what happens here. It says, seeing the miracles done by Paul and desiring the power like we saw with Simon the magician, they tried to perform the works of God in themselves. Now, how do we know that these men didn't actually have a real relationship with God? Look at how the evil spirits respond to them. It's amazing. It says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Who are you? However possible, I don't know how, but demons have a knowledge not only of Jesus, but also of us who belong to Jesus as well. I think this is most clearly evidence for us in the story of Job when Satan comes to God and he says, what have you been doing? He's been, I've been going to and fro all the earth seeking somebody that I can destroy. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Satan knew exactly who Job was. He says, yes, I have considered him, but you have a hedge of protection around him. So somehow they do have this knowledge because he knew who Job was. Not only that, but... Just a man named Legion, a man filled with multiple demons. He knew who Jesus was, but then he says, have you come to torment us before our time? Even the demons knew that there was and is an extinction date on their opportunity to be able to operate in the earth. So they are up against a pretty serious threat here. And they're thinking, oh, we adjure you by the power of Jesus to come out of this man because this looks really very this looks really good on their part. Now, we may think, you know, our modern kind of evolved sense of thinking, how stupid could they be? 
How could you think that you could do a miracle and you aren't even in a relationship with the true God? But then that makes me think. How can we expect anything out of God and we're not in a right relationship with him? You may think, okay, how sacrilegious of you, Brandon. God provides everything for whomever he wants to provide. And that's true to a degree. But is it a reasonable expectation for somebody who's not a believer, who's not in right relationship with God, to think that God has to do anything for them? See, the pretenders are not just those who are trying to do these magnanimous things like command a demon to come out. But it is also those of us who have any expectation from God, but neglecting a relationship with God. Look at Matthew six and 30. It says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What is the expectation here? Really, if you are in Christ and seeking his will, then the things that you need to have provided need, I didn't say want, the things that you need to have provided will be provided. And sometimes in God's provision, we realize that the things we thought we needed, we don't really need at all. But it is actually the unbelievers that he says are seeking after empty pleasures and having expectations of God that they shouldn't have. He says, no, if you're in Christ, if you just seek me, these things will be added. But those are the things that the Gentiles, the pagans, the unbelievers, that's what they seek after. The unbelievers expect something out of God that they shouldn't. And that's what the great offense here is. When the demon says to them, I know them. But I don't know you. You know who also didn't know them? God. Not only did the demon not know who they were, God also didn't know them. They were unknown to God because they were not in a relationship with God. See, I really want to dig into this because Jesus has warned us that there are actually going to be people, whether legitimately or illegitimately, I do not know, but who are going to say, I healed the sick, I raised the dead, I cast out demons, I performed miracles, I performed signs, I performed wonders in your name, and the response that they're going to get is, but I never knew you. It's scary, but it points to a larger issue, and I think this is what it is. And this is where many people today even still wrestle that the basis of their relationship with God is bent on their ability to perform certain works. It's built on their performance rather than the relationship they actually have with him. That's ultimately the issue here. I don't want a relationship with God that produces works. I want to be able to do some good works that will inevitably produce a relationship with God. And I'm telling you now, anybody who lives that way has no depth in their relationship with God at all. I would rather check all the spiritual boxes and say, OK, this is what validates me. I go to church, I tithe, I read, I do all the things, thereby I'm saved. But that is the most shallow way you could be thinking about your relationship with God. So if I first answer the question of 
why we have so much new age spiritism is is that it requires no depth. Then I would say the second reason is that it's because it denies the true power of God. It requires no depth and it denies the true power of God. Like these men, one of the big problems is that people have their own form of godliness, but that form of godliness denies the actual power of God. Their denial of a lifestyle for God is to deny the power of God. Look at what 2 Timothy 3 and 1 says. Of course, it's Paul writing Timothy. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep in the household and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. As Paul writes this letter to Timothy, I have no doubt that he is writing with the context of what this event was and what had happened with this event in his mind. But I bet again, when we read this, this sounds like exactly where we are in our lives. This is exactly where we are. How how can I say that I have a relationship with God, but be as uncommitted as I can be? How can I check the boxes? How can I say I watched church online? How can I say that I did the Zoom? Like how how easily can I say that and skate by? Yet the power of God is not infiltrating who I am on the inside. Of course, it sounds like our world. Look at all the things he lists here. These all scream. And if you look out at our world, we can see this happening even in the church. They all scream that I'm more interested in me than I am in God. Lovers of pleasure. Arrogant, puffed up. I'm more interested in me. What makes me happy? What makes me feel good? I don't want to go to a church or hear sermons with depth. I want like the, the least common denominator. Like, like, how can I just say I did it this week without having to feel personal conviction or have to feel sanctification happening in my life? And so out of this, you have many preachers and churches who have built their entire ministry, their entire theology on self-centeredness. And so they can say all the good God stuff. They can do all the good God things. But ultimately, they deny the power of God. Now, how does one have the appearance of godliness? That's how. That's how. 
I don't care how much you think about God. I don't care how many of the things you practice. If what you feel and think about God is not shaping who you are on the inside, you have the appearance of godliness, but you are denying the true power of God. When someone confronts you in your life about what is true regarding the word of God, you do not come with some snide comment about, oh, well, that's this and you this. No, you say that's right, because it comes from the word of God, the same word of God that my life will be judged by. Is it uncomfortable when the word of God confronts me? Yes. Why is it uncomfortable? Because it's like a thorn in my side. Oh, wait a minute. Paul had a thorn in his side. Well, he went to God to have it taken out because it was so uncomfortable. And the response that he gets is that, no, Satan has come to make you feel proud. Therefore, I have given you this thorn to keep you humble. That is the same way the word of God should be working in our lives. But that's not the way cheap faith works. See, this is how you have the appearance of godliness. You do all the stuff. You put on airs. You make it appear that you are spiritual through your works and deeds externally. So where is the denial? The true demonstration of God's power. Hear this. The true demonstration of God's power is not found in miracles. It's not. It is not found in our dead deeds or our works. It's not. The true demonstration of God's power is found in our salvation. That's where the greatest demonstration of the power of God is found. Look at Mark 2 and 5. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Notice what happens here. Jesus tells this man that his sins are forgiven. And when the Jewish officials heard it, they said, wait, wait a minute. Are you God that you can forgive the sins of someone? And then he asks him this question, which is beautiful because he is showing us something really deep here. He says, "Okay, which one of these things is easy for me to say to heal or to forgive sins? The implication here is that what is required to heal is not nearly as powerful as what is needed to forgive somebody's sins. There would be others who would come legitimately perform miracles, some who would falsify them. But nobody, no matter how great they were, not Peter, not Paul, not John, not Brandon, none of us could say to somebody, but your sins because of me are forgiven. It takes a greater deal of power to be able to forgive somebody's sins. And that's exactly what Jesus did. 
And to have any other attribute of religion that demonstrates your actions but rejects the salvation of God is a total denial of the power of God. For us in this room and watching, are we allowing the power of God to actually take hold of us in our lives? I mean, like, are we legitimately finding ourselves being sanctified, being conformed into the image of God? Are we being changed into his likeness? Reminds me of this story of this couple that walked into a car dealership and as they were walking around and looking for a reliable but nice car, they came up to these two cars and both of the cars were the same price. One, of course, is a luxury vehicle with all the amenities, all the bells and whistles, everything you could ask for. And the other one was just quite bland, to be honest. Your standard package, nothing special. Now, the couple of things, all right, well, they're the same price. This is a relatively easy decision. We're going to get the luxury car. But then the dealer walks up to him and says, all right, I should probably warn you. The nice luxury car, it doesn't have an engine. He said, wait, who in the world would want a nice car that doesn't have an engine? And he said, well, believe it or not, some people like the appearance, but not the power. I think oftentimes there are people who want the appearance of Christianity, but they don't want the true power of Christianity. The true power of Christianity is nothing external. It is about what God is doing internally. Many people want the appearance of what religion looks like, but not what true faith requires. And true faith requires power. What kind of power? It requires the kind of power that not only raised Jesus from the dead, but the same power that raised us from the dead. It takes a great power to take somebody's black heart, pour it in red blood, and then it come out as white as snow. Just tell you like this, pretenders don't fly. Finally, it denies our true hope. It denies our true hope. Even in our day, the pretenders don't hope in the eternality of Christ, but rather their hope is in the sporadic, every now and again, experiences of spirituality. Their hope is in that God provides them a house, that God will provide their finances, that God will provide that nice car, a good job. But there is no hope in that everything God has for us, he has secured for us, not in the right now, but it is secured in the what's to come. Most people don't want that. Most people won't know, God, give me everything that you were supposed to you know, give it to me right now. I want it right now. You know why? Because they have no hope in eternity. Why don't have any hope in eternity? Because they've denied the true power of what salvation is. No wonder we don't have a hope in eternity. People who do not have their hope fixed in and on eternity will only feel near to God when they are blessed with something tangible. But they don't feel as close to him when nothing special is happening. Our relationship with God should be predicated not on what he's doing externally. What is God doing in your life internally? 
What is the impact that he's having? And not just that, what are you doing to cultivate sanctification in your life? I don't care if you come to our church and listen to our sermons. It's fine. I don't care if people listen to the podcast. That's fine. That's not enough. When you are away from here, which is where you spend the majority of your time, how are you cultivating a relationship with God? How are you devoting yourself to scripture? How are you devoting yourself to prayer? How are you devoting yourself to the word of God? This cannot be the only sermon you hear this week. That's not enough. You will probably won't even remember tomorrow, but look, that's just like that's not enough to hold you until you get back here next week. How are we cultivating a life for God? What do your spiritual disciplines look like? Listen, I say this all the time, but I say it again. Your spiritual disciplines are just like going to the gym. It is just like stressing and working out your spirit. And I'm telling you now, most of the days I get up, I don't feel like going. But that doesn't mean that I'm not seeing the benefit of my having gone. It doesn't matter when you wake up, if you don't feel like doing that devotional, if you don't feel like praying, if you don't feel like reading scripture, if you don't feel like having worship time, if you don't feel like fellowshipping. It doesn't matter if you don't feel like it. I guarantee you, you will notice when you don't do it. Sanctification, this is the struggle for people, is not this big one-time event. Sanctification is the gradual, lifelong process of us becoming less like ourselves and more like him. Look back at yourself a year ago. How closer to God are you now than you were then? How much deeper are you in a relationship with God now than you were six months ago? How did the pandemic sanctify you, not crush you like it did to the world? See, the evidence of how you respond to what happens in life is the evidence of what's happening in your life. One of the funny things about being a dad, specifically a dad with very strong genes, is that if you look at my children, they obviously belong to me. Like Chris's kind of reoccurring joke is, I just carry these children. But they come out looking just like me. So obviously when you look at them, you can say, oh, them, those are Brandon's kids. Look at the ears, look at the eyebrows. Like, th- those are clearly Brandon's kids. Look at the nose. Like, I know. And obviously as a father, like, I take a great deal of pride in, like, yes, my kids look like me. I'm great looking. Like, why would I not want my kids to look like They look just like me. Don't shake your head at me, John. They look great. They look like me. And there is a bit of pride. But you know what gives me even more pride? It's not just when people say they look just like you. There's a whole other type of pride when people say, but they act just like you, too. Let me tell you something. For them to look like me requires nothing on my part. Requires no relationship with them. It requires no depth. I don't have to be at home. For them to look like me is a matter of genetics. But for them to act like me, to speak the way that I speak, to think the way that I think, to do things the way that I do, that means that they've spent some time with me. That means that we have cultivated a relationship with them. They're picking up my characteristics. Externally, 
The outer appearance is not what makes a son a son. It's not what makes a daughter a daughter. It's what's happening on the inside because of that relationship. In the same way with us, what makes us a son or a daughter of Christ is not about the fact that I can dress all modestly and not wear makeup and do all these things and look all holy. It's about when I speak, you hear love, you hear grace, you hear justice, you hear patience, you hear kindness, you see long suffering. You see all the attributes of Jesus Christ in me on the inside because I've been spending time with him. I don't know if you remember, but it was a while ago when the apostles had come back down, the people said and they could tell that they had been with Jesus. Can people tell that you have been with Jesus? I mean, I mean, really, can people see that? No, I've spent time with Jesus. We belong to God, not because of what he is doing on the outside, but because when people look at the attributes of who we are. When they look at our love, when they look at our grace, our justice, our mercy, our discipline. They see people who are being conformed into his image. One of the great compliments for me is I don't run into people that I went to school with often at all, especially not high school. I never run into people like that. But every now and again, when I do, like, man, you're different. Like you like it's like you're a whole different person. Like you are not the same person we went to high school with. Last week, Alicia was just telling me something. I don't even remember this girl, but she was like, Brandon, a preacher. That was her response. She's like, I can't believe that. And while at first I'm like, all right, that's kind of offensive. But then I'm like, but you know what? That would make a lot of sense because I remember who I was. I remember what I was. And the fact that it is a shock to people or that when people meet me or see me again, that I'm unrecognizable. I hope it's because I look like Christ. I hope it's because there's sanctification happening in my life. So my question for you is I'm I'm closing or I'm closed. How authentic is your relationship with God? How real is it? Are you like the seven sons of Sceva who's like, no, I want to show everybody how deep and religious and spiritual I am. Or are you like the real Christians who are being slowly and gradually sanctified and that the evidence is happening in your life? How has he changed you and sanctified you to be more like him? This past week, we were having this situation and there's um, some issues that, you know, I come across at the school, you know, being a director of spiritual formation. You just kind of get pulled in and specifically when they're like issues of like spirituality, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And we have, you know, somebody who's there and who's struggling with the kids and, and some of the things happening there and. And at one point, they kind of made the comments like, you know, but but I was beloved at my old school. They loved me. I was their favorite class. Everybody loved me there. Now here, they're the problem. And I started to think, you know, that sounds a lot like somebody's being eaten up with pride. 
And that because the circumstance was changed, because it became an obstacle, because what used to be easy is now difficult, now you see, oh, wait a minute. I'm not as far along as I thought I was. And so some of that authenticity that wasn't there, God is using the obstacle and the difficulties to pull it out. And it feels like sandpaper. That's what sanctification feels like. But in those moments, God is shaving off pride. He's shaving off anger. He's shaving off impatience. He's shaving off lust. He's shaving off all the things that if I had not had to go through this, I wouldn't have realized that I was not who I thought I was. And so my prayer for you and for myself is that whatever God may be permitting or allowing to happen in your life that is creating chaos, creating difficulty. How is God using that to show you who you are? And when you see it, you know, that famous Maya Angelou, somebody shows you who you are, believe them. When God shows you who you are, believe it. And take it as an opportunity to be conformed to his image. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we just, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that the word does God at times cuts and at times feels really bad and reveals things about us that we thought weren't there. But the reality also is that, God, you use the word to sanctify us. God, if we are believers in this room who are claiming to be Christians and we are not being sanctified internally, we are not being conformed to your image. Then, God, what are we? Who are we? God, it is very easy, it is very comfortable to do all the stuff, to check all the boxes, to say all the right things, to attend, to do this, to do that. But it is not our external works that justify us, God. Lord, help us receive true power from you. Acknowledge what true power is, is that one, that if we are saved, that is the greatest demonstration of your power that we've ever known. And that if we aren't, there is a price for us pretending. Lord, remind us that you paid the price so that we don't have to. Make us and shape us and conform us authentically into the image of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.